Hello and welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine and I'm here with my co-host Reese. Hi Reese. Hey, what's up? How you doing? I'm all right. Uh, And we are recording on Saturday, March the 25th. You'll be listening to this on Sunday, March the 26th. And also on Monday, uh, March the 27th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, So, yeah, it's a pretty nasty late, well, early spring day in March. It feels like a late winter day in Brooklyn. Mm All right. Well, we've got sun over here in Los Angeles, which is always good for the weekend. But this rain out here, I'm telling you, it's been feeling like Seattle, man. Oh, man. I mean, do do y'all need it? Like, have it has it been like a drought out there that you know of? It's been a drought in Southern California for, for a few years, to my understanding. So things are definitely super vibrant, which is nice. But this is just like not a good city for something like that because it's not built on hills, you know, so it's flooding all the time. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but it's nice to have sun today. So okay, Crazy well, good good for you. Soak it up for me. I will. I will. I'll send you a picture. Okay. <laughs> uh so for our local news story, we're going to talk about um Trump trumping up expectations of being arrested. Um for our national news, we are talking about can you remind me again, Reese? Yes, we are going to talk about the uh, Los Angeles school strike that happened this week for three days. Right. Yeah. And for world news, we're talking about the return of a death flight plane uh, to Argentina. And for good news, we're talking about um, the alleged resilience of happy people or happiness <laughs> over the past three years. So we'll, we'll get into that. We'll, we'll see what our verdict is on that one. Exactly. Um, But I will be starting us out with the local news story. And this information is from Reuters. It was written by Karen Freefeld and Luke Cohen. The title is Manhattan District Attorney says Trump created false expectation of arrest. Republicans interfered. Manhattan prosecutors on Thursday said Donald Trump misled people to expect he would be arrested this week and prompted fellow Republicans in Congress to interfere with a probe underway into his hush money payment to porn star Stormy Daniels. On Saturday, the former president said he would be arrested on Tuesday in the probe by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. On Monday, three Republican committee chairmen in the U.S. House of Representatives went on the offensive against District Attorney Alvin Bragg, a Democrat, accusing him of abusing prosecutorial authority and seeking communications, documents, and testimony from him. As of Wednesday, a grand jury hearing evidence in the Stormy Daniels case had yet to issue an indictment, and on Thursday, Bragg's office sent the committee chairman a letter seen by Reuters. The letter said the chairman's accusations only came after Donald Trump created a false expectation that he would be arrested the next day and his lawyers reportedly urged you to intervene. It confirmed that Bragg's office was investigating allegations that Donald Trump engaged in violations of New York State penal law. If indicted, Trump would be the first U.S. president to face criminal charges. 
He served as president from 2017 to 2021 and has mounted a third campaign for the White House while facing legal woes on several fronts. Trump also faces federal investigations stemming from his handling of government documents after leaving the White House and alleged attempts to overturn his 2020 election defeat, as well as state a state level pro- as well as a state level probe in Georgia into whether he unlawfully sought to reverse the 2020 election results there. So, whew, as you can see, it's a long rap sheet, and we're not even getting to into stuff from before he was even president. Uh, Trump has said he will continue campaigning for president if charged with a crime. The response on Thursday from Bragg's office said the three Republican House committee chairmen had sought non-public information about a pending criminal investigation, which is confidential under state law. The letter's requests are an unlawful incursion into New York sovereignty, said the letter signed by the district attorney's general counsel, Leslie Dubeck. Congress cannot have any legitimate legislative tasks relating to the oversight of local prosecutors enforcing state law. The grand jury made up of U.S. citizens residing in Manhattan convened in January. Its proceedings are not public and prosecutors are barred from discussing them. It was not expected to meet again until next week at the earliest after media reports said it would not take up the case on Thursday. Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal fixer and lawyer, has said he made the payment to Daniels days before the 2016 presidential election at Trump's direction. Daniels, a well-known adult film actress and director whose real name is Stephanie Clifford, has said she received the money in exchange for keeping silent about a sexual encounter she had with Trump in 2006. Trump has denied he ever had an affair with Daniels and has called the payment a simple private transaction. He has said he did not commit a crime and has called the investigation politically motivated. Cohen pleaded guilty in 2018 to campaign finance law violations and other crimes related to the payment and received a prison sentence. Last week, he testified before the grand jury, which is believed generally to meet on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So yeah, girl, like I know there was some hullabaloo about protests and it was sure enough some people protesting in the city. There was an alleged, you know, bomb scare at one of the courthouses in Manhattan, so seems like a whole lot of mess but not a whole lot of action actually happening which is you know par for the course with this clown exactly it's on brand and i feel like he did that because he just needed to you know distract us from something else that was going on probably that's how they move these things but as we was discussing before he should have been under the jail it's to the point now where he even making a joke out of it like y'all ain't fucking locked me up yet <laughs> Oh my god! Like, I couldn't, and the the nerve the nerve of him to be like he was basically telling his followers that they need to protest and all of this if he gets arrested, just pulling stunts, stunts and shows. Yep, yep, always just to stay relevant for no reason and charge up his base. As we enter the second quarter, but best believe they over here planning. 
They definitely planning because if he would have got locked up, some shit would have happened, I believe. Uh, no, I I agree with you. Like I didn't go into it, but I did see um a headline like claiming that there were like Russian bots behind some of these bomb threats. Oh, wow. um, NBC News is now saying that um and the DA probing Trump. So uh, Alvin Bragg received death threat letter with white powder. So that was in the last twenty four hours. Um, that happened. Uh, and if you're not uh, aware, uh, listeners, Alvin Bragg is a black man. And um, Trump released, I think it was on his like social media, his true social or whatever. He released a statement that um, had a lot of racist and anti-Semitic dog whistles because he referred to the uh, Alvin Bragg as a Soros backed animal. So, you know, just very, you know, these people know exactly what they're doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows who he appeals to with that type of language, that type of rhetoric and like riling people up. It's like sicking a bunch of rabid dogs against the people you're against. And it's just, I'll be glad when he's a distant memory, but he seems to keep on hanging on. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't think he's going anywhere until he's going anywhere, you know? So, apparently he ain't going to jail. <laughs> I mean, we we can hope. We can, you know, we'll see. Yeah. I guess stra- stranger things have happened. I never thought I'd be living through a global pandemic, but yet here we are. That is true. You know, all this other weirdness is going down. Like, it's not impossible maybe improbable not very likely but it could happen so i guess we'll see i guess we will keep working on it (laughs) y'all yeah i mean (laughs) prayers up for um da bragg and all these threats and stuff that his office is getting like i know that's got to be stressful getting being caught up in this foolishness just because you know you're doing your job yeah definitely yeah All right, so you're listening again to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, this is a topical throwback track. This is Akon with Locked Up. We'll be right back. Money. Money. Products moving fast. fast. Put away. 
around and got locked up. They won't let me out. They won't let me out. No longer comes by. It seems like they forgot about me. Commissary is getting empty. Cellmates eating food without me. Can't wait to get out and move forward with my life. Got a family that loves me and wants me to do right. But instead, I'm getting locked up. They won't let me out. They won't let me out. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Reese with our national news story. All right. So this information comes from the New York Times article um, written on March 23rd. The authors are Curtis Lee and Samaya Karlmanagala. Sorry if I butchered your name. The title is What We Know About Los Angeles School Strike. This was happening this week. I've seen the people out on the picket line in the rain. Anyway, here's the story. Tens of thousands of Los Angeles school employees continued to strike on Thursday, forcing hundreds of campuses to remain closed and canceling classes for 422,000 students. The strike began Tuesday at a bus yard in the San Fernando Valley, north of downtown Los Angeles, and was scheduled to to last for three days. Classes were expected to resume on Friday across Los Angeles Unified, the second largest school district in the nation. The union, which represents 30,000 support workers in the school district, is seeking 30% pay increase, saying that many employees make little more than minimum wage and struggle to afford costs in Southern California. The Los Angeles Teachers Union asked its 35,000 members to walk out in solidarity to avoid crossing the support workers picket lines. Parents scrambled this week to make child arrangements because the walkout by both the support workers and the teachers necessitated shutting down more than a thousand schools. So who's on strike? The dispute involves Local 99 of the Service Employees International Union, which represents people who work for Los Angeles Unified in a variety of non-teaching jobs like bus drivers, cafeteria workers, special education assistants, and gardeners. The union announced on Monday afternoon that its members would strike for three days and resume class on Friday. United Teachers Los Angeles, which represents teachers and some other district employees, is not a party of the labor dispute, but said its members would not cross local 99 picket lines. So what are they seeking? Contract negotiations between Local 99 and Los Angeles Unified began in April 2022, and Local 99 declared in December that the talks were at an impasse, according to union members. 
Its members voted overwhelmingly in February to authorize a strike. Its members know a strike will be a sacrifice, but the school district has pushed workers to take action now. Max Arias, the executive director of Local 99, said in the statement. The union is seeking a 30% overall raise, an additional $2 per hour increase for the lowest paid workers, and other increases in compensation. Local 99 said its workers made an average income of $25,000 a year. Many of the union members work part-time for the district. The full-time equivalent average was not available. The union chart showed that after-school workers, campus aides, and cafeteria employees were the lowest paid members. A counter-proposal from the district announced by Mr. Carvalho, the superintendent, at a news conference late on Monday included a 23% reoccurring increase and a 3% cash-in-hand bonus. The teachers union is also in contract discussions with the district, but has not called its own walkout, other than saying it will honor Local 99's picket lines this week. The district's latest proposal for teachers includes a 5% increase for the school year and a 6% raise next year and a 3% increase in the 24-25 school year. In October, the teachers union called for a 20% pay increase. And so there's another article here, just a little bit about the results of it. Um, the students did go back to class on Friday. Mayor Karen Bass has stepped in Wednesday to help mediate talks and was expected to continue those efforts. Bass's aim has been to help the parties reach an agreement to reopen schools and guarantee fair treatments of its LAUSD workers. So I think um, this article is just an updated article from the Los Angeles Times. But I think they are still in negotiations. They haven't really came to an official number, but they did hold the strike for three days and they went back to school on Friday. So what stands out most to me about this article? I mean, it's, it sucks. First of all, there's so many people that are affected by this. And the fact that they are expected to live off of $25,000 a year. Like Yo, that's, in L.A. That's unreal. That's What are you doing in L.A. with that? That's monopoly money. That's crazy. And they have children and all types of things. You know, like, this is why you see, like, entire families living in, like, a studio apartment trying to make it out here, trying to make ends meet. And it affects so many people, you know, three days um, of no school for, like, 422,000 students. They need to really come to terms with what's happening here. Yeah, and I'm looking at CBS News. Um this is from yes last night at 8 30 it's saying that there was a tentative agreement after the strike so the local 99 which represents 30,000 LAUSD teachers aides bus drivers custodians and other support staff announced Friday that the agreement includes a 30 percent wage increase and a retroactive pay increase of between four thousand and eight thousand dollars the increase right. will, will raise the average annual salary of its workers from about 25000 to 33000 the union said. Wow. It would bring the school district's minimum wage up to $22.52 per hour. So, you know, I still think, somewhere. you know, that's still kind of low, but that's still that's a big jump. low still for Southern California. Are you serious? But yeah, they got somewhere. I know. And like, I do know a lot of it was saying a lot of the workers are part time. So that could also be a reflection of 
like maybe had they if they were working full time that would be 50 which is still too low yeah but you know it it at least if the hourly if the base is higher and maybe you have other forms of income like your total isn't so bad but that's some that's yeah. some good news i guess we're starting out with some genuine good news they got what they asked for yeah i mean shout out to them though i seen them this week they was out there man it was serious and it was raining it was all out there outside of some of the schools and um happened to be um on the bus that and the bus drivers was all honked for them and stuff so you know there was some solidarity and um you know shout out for them to, for supporting because remember that was just the support workers that wasn't the right. teachers are under a similar situation but they haven't you know, had a walkout and they did it in solidarity with them, shut them schools down. That's some real shit. <laughs> yeah, no, because some people are, you know, they'll, they're scabs or like they don't really, they see themselves as being separate from the yeah. people who have those support jobs, but those jobs are extremely important. Like they're That's essential right. to making things function. Like I'll never forget, it was in the context of healthcare. Um, there was a person who it was on Twitter and they were describing, it was either Twitter or Facebook and they worked in uh, a support staff role in a hospital. Like, I think they were a custodian and taught, they mentioned, they used the term like my patients and stuff and people were trying to clown them and just being very nasty and condescending. Like those aren't your patients or whatever. Mm. It's like, you know what, who keeps the place clean? So you're not in and out of there with infections and all of that. It's not the doctor or the surgeon. It's the people who are the custodians. You know, people yeah. come by, they make sure you're eating, checking up on you, you know, doing some of the stuff like maybe physically cleaning the person and taking care of waste and all of that. You yeah. don't have that working smoothly. You don't have a functioning hospital, period. That's right. But those are not the people that get the respect. And it's the yeah. same at, at most places. It's the same in schools. What have, you know? What have you been around people with kids, and they had to deal with all the bus drivers not being able to work and being out sick, and how catastrophic that was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's tough for them too because now they got to find babysitters, and they still got to go to work. And so, come yeah. on, like that's that's a serious function of our society. For them to, you know, not revere these people and not see the humanity of what they're asking for. The fact that they even had to go on strike for so little. You know, no one in Southern California should be making less than at least 50000 And that is a serious struggle, you know? Yeah. So the fact that these people was making twenty five, probably part-time because that's what's available because the school hours, you know what I mean? It's probably cheaper to get people to work part-time than to pay them full-time with all the full-time benefits and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. That's the whole how they system. like to do to keep yeah. you right right under. It's like if full time kicks in at 35 hours, they'll have all, as many people at like 34 and a half yep. as they can so that they can avoid it. But you know, these places they have the money because they tried to lowball them at first and not give them what they asked for, like, oh, we'll do this. And they held out and they got what they got their demand met. So you know, that is something, there's so much bad news these days, but I will say that a lot of these labor victories do make me feel somewhat hopeful because it can become yeah. contagious. Like you see that they did it and it can make other people think, you know what, I can do better too. Or like I can get people together in my workplace and demand more and see. Just wait till the teachers start. It. 
just wait till the teachers start. And I, you know, then it's going to be a real severe situation when, when all the support staff is supporting the teachers and that's even worse. So they, you know, they should definitely take note what, of what's happening here. And, um, you know, certain states, certain positions in local government control the school. I think I read in one of the articles I just read um, from the Times that the mayor is not uh, the mayor in Los Angeles. The way it's set up that the mayor does not uh, really decide on the school budget. It's left mm-hmm. up to like a private um, chair. So, you know, a private, you know, entity of whatever this this makeup of this county is. But um you know, so the mayor was there trying to make the negotiations. But when those things are decided in a, you know, private setting, private forum, because if it's not, you know, within the local government, this is the type of shit that happens. And they get away with it for a long period of time. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we do see too, that they had a better outcome in a state like California, you know, not that California or New York are like, paradise but you know sometimes when you look at the country as a whole like some of these states are so viciously Mm anti-worker that i don't know if they would have had the same outcome you know if they were in some of these um, midwestern states or in the deep south like that have really you know gutted a lot of the union power and stuff like that like it's it's frightening because people are really who are running this country they're really trying to take us back to the bad old days with these child labor laws being pulled back so mm-hmm. you know they don't have to have reasonable protections and you got vulnerable people working for pennies children you know and they're trying to bring that back like it's a good thing you know like we're up against some really scary forces when it comes to you know being anti-work or even this yeah. uh, AI stuff, like replace trying to replace workers with computers so you can completely avoid paying people what they need to survive. It's it's spooky. Yeah, and some something to be mindful of, you know, is is really understanding who makes the decisions about the school district within your area, um, because you know the reality is these in this case these politicians, um, Gavin Newsom and Karen Bass, they were advocating for it sounds like they were advocating for trying to assist in this process of facilitating change. But think about that, you know, like we don't even, we have sometimes blind faith and trust that, you know, how things are running. Like we don't need to know what that is, but that is definitely something to consider if, you know, um, with your school district and how those decisions are made for your children and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know, um, did you see the story about how um, in Texas, like they're trying to completely take over the public schools and like make it, Yep. you know, I don't know, was it like they're trying to make it all like charter or they're just going to have it not be a, a politicians that are accountable to the local community anymore? Yeah, it's probably the same setup that we're seeing here. You know, um, and that, and that's how they do things like um, some of the things we've been talking about, changing curriculum um, and just, you know, t- changing the structure of schools that we, as we know it. Um, that's how they do it. You know, start privatizing the people that make those decisions. And before you know it, you know, everything going to be changed. But let's just take the positive from this story. <laughs> right. Yeah. And speaking of um, labor rights and labor history, uh, we'd be remiss without acknowledging that the day we're recording this, Saturday, March 25th, 
and it's actually it was actually a Saturday also that it happened in history in nineteen eleven. That's a hundred and twenty two years ago was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City. Um, so that was an example of you know the people at the top to save some money in nickel and diamond. You know they created the environment for. Um, 146 garment workers to die mm-hmm. uh, from fire and smoke inhalation or jump into their deaths, you know, because they didn't want to have the decency to make sure that they had a way to get out in case of an emergency. They wanted them locked in there, couldn't hardly breathe, couldn't escape when something happened. And, you know, all those people lost their lives. And that's what it took for these conditions to change. So, you know, just a stark reminder that, you know, unfortunately, people in power are not going to give you rights because they feel like it. You have to push and you have to fight for them because they will let it get to the point where you will die. (laughs) You know, they don't care about how much money you need to survive, the things that you need to be safe and healthy on your job. All they care about are those numbers. So, you know, good for these workers for standing up for themselves, like knowing their worth, holding the line and people who, you know, others think they might be above them, but they were like, no, like these are our colleagues. We're going to stand with them. You know, we need to see more of that. Yeah, definitely a strong community. All right. So you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, uh, we have a song by an Aries artist, Shaka Khan, whose birthday recently passed. She was born on March the 23rd, so she recently turned 70. Uh, And this is one of my favorite upbeat songs by her. This is I Know You, I Live You. We'll be right back.
can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news story, um, this information comes from The Guardian. I'm going to read almost all of the article. It's a bit lengthy. Some of it has been cut for the sake of time. Uh, It was written by Yuki Gonyi on Friday, March the 24th. The article's title is No One Can Deny It Now, Death Flight Plane to Be Returned to Argentina. Uh, But before I get into the actual article, I wanted to just give some background. Um, So Argentina, during the years of 1976 to 1983, uh, was under the control of a military dictator whose name was Jorge Videla. And that regime executed a lower-intensity Nazi-style genocide. Uh, The dictator Videla was quoted as saying, as many people as is necessary will die in Argentina to protect the hemisphere from the international communist conspiracy. And he said that before, uh, months before armed forces overthrew the government of Maria Estela Martinez, the widow of Juan Domingo Perón in March, 1976. Uh, Actually on the 24th of March, 1976. So we just passed the anniversary um, of him installing his regime. Uh, Under the Videla regime and during the next six years, up to 30,000 people were murdered in the name of quote unquote, national reorganization and Western Christian civilization. The regime openly vowed to defend Western and Christian civilization by turning Argentina into the moral reserve of the Western world. To do that, thousands of young people with ideas borrowed from America's hippie culture, the Paris of May 1968, and the Cuban Revolution had to die. Our Christian identity was in danger, police commander Miguel Echet. Eche Colatz testified during his trial, kissing his white rosary before the judges. Uh, So that's just some background. Also from The Guardian um, on what was happening um, in Argentina during those years. Uh, And the news that just came out recently is connected to that period in time. On the night of December 14, 1977, the three pilots flew their turboprop aeroplane for more than an hour out over the Atlantic Ocean. The technical log they had completed on takeoff registered no passengers, but that was a lie. On the cabin floor behind them lay eight women and four men, tortured, drugged, and barely conscious. Two of the flight crew stripped the victims naked and opened the ramp door at the rear of the plane. Then they pushed their victims out to fall thousands of feet into the South Atlantic. Though such death flights by which thousands perished were routine during Argentina's 1976 to 1983 military dictatorship, many of their details remain unknown. 
After an astounding series of events, however, not only have the pilots of this particular flight been identified and convicted, but the plane itself, a Belfast-built short SC-7 Skyvan, has been located in the United States and will soon be returned to Argentina, where it will be put on display in Buenos Aires at the Museum of Memory, set up in the former Argentinian military death camp that it once served. Cecilia de Vicenti, whose mother, Ezecena Villaflor, perished on the flight, said the plane's return will provide concrete proof against Argentina's rising tide of dictatorship denialism. It will render history tangible. They were alive until December 14th when they were thrown from this plane, and no one will be able to deny that now, she said. Unlike Brazil and Uruguay, where wide-ranging amnesties were passed for crimes committed during their dictatorships, Argentina has tried and convicted about 1,000 former military officers for human rights abuses under military rule. But that consensus shattered under former President Mauricio Macri, who may run again in this year's elections, and who this week dismissed the issue as the human rights scam of what happened 40 years ago. It is hoped that the plane will return to Argentina by April 30th, the anniversary of the first time the mothers of Plaza de Mayo marched in front of the presidential palace in 1977, demanding news of their children who had been forcibly disappeared by state forces. The 12 people thrown from the sky van on the night of December 14th belonged to the group of the Church of the Holy Cross, named after the Irish community church where they met. They included three members of the Mothers of Plaza de Mayo, including Villa Flor, three other relatives of missing people, two French nuns, and four young activists who helped the relatives in their search for their loved ones. The aircraft used for that flight was located thanks to a tireless search by death camp survivor Miriam Lewin and an Italian photographer, Giancarlo Serraudo, who grew up with a fascination for airplanes. Um, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So when Lewin and Serraudo uh, were able to find uh, the plane, they asked an Argentinian sports journalist in Miami to visit the company who owned it at the time. Uh, the owner not only allowed the plane to be photographed, but also provided its flight logs, which dated all the way back to the time of the death flights. Uh, so in the flight logs, uh, there was an entry that said a three-hour flight took place in December 1977 from Buenos Aires City Airport back to the Buenos Aires City Airport with no stop in between. The log included the names of the three pilots, and along with other documentation, led to the 2017 conviction of two of them, Mario Daniel Aru and Alejandro Domingo D'Agostino. The third pilot named in the flight log, Enrique Jose de St. George, died of natural causes awaiting trial. Mabel Carriaga, whose mother, Esther Balestrino, perished on the same December 14, 1977 flight, teamed up with De Vincenti to petition the Argentinian government to repatriate the plane from the U.S.
It's a story full of incredible coincidences, says Carrie Aga. The bodies of five of the 12, including my mother and Dave Vincenti's mother, were discovered in a common grave in 2005, where they had been buried unidentified in 1978 after having washed up on the beach of Santa Teresita, about 340 kilometers south of Buenos Aires. The court was able to locate the original forensic report from the doctor in Santa Teresita in 1978, who, at great risk to himself, stated that the five bodies had clearly fallen into the water from a great height. Uh, So the plane is expected to um, be flown back from Arizona, uh, where it currently is. It will take about eight or nine stops before it reaches Argentina. Uh, In Buenos Aires, three women will be waiting for it with mixed emotions. When I first saw the plane in Fort Lauderdale in 2014, I wasn't able to go on board. I could have died on that plane myself, and many people I knew died on it. I don't know how I I will react now. When I see photos of the cabin, I can't help but imagine my mother in there, said Kariaga. But I still think it has to be on display at the Death Camp Museum because it is part of history now. It has to do with love, said De Vincenti. My mother went out to look for my brother, putting her own life at risk. She transformed her pain into love. She did that under a dictatorship. If I can't do it during a democracy, that would make me a coward. So yeah, like a, it was a long story, but you know, definitely one that I think is worth looking more into, like especially if you're not familiar uh, with the history of some of these, you know, just brutal, brutal, brutal repressive regimes that disappeared so many people, tortured so many. Um, There were many children in Argentina where their mothers were killed by the regime, like right after they gave birth. And then the babies were then stolen and just given away to people who supported the dictator. So I'm glad to at least see that they're able to get some kind of closure and that this um, death plane is going to be on display, like as a testament to what happened. Wow, that's um interesting story. I mean, there's so much history um, that we don't know about, right, that is that has played a part in the way that the world is today. These destructive regimes that do things like this, just the thought of a death plane um, just throwing people off for whatever reason, like it's, it's hard to even fathom. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, you know, with our United States government. I, I'm sure it's happened. It could be happening right now in stories that we'll never hear about um, of people. But it's nice that they have recovered this and these people are getting some sort of closure and, you know, in some ways memorializing their families. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm glad you mentioned the United States because um, there are, you know, even though these are countries that many of us, if you are a U.S. citizen, you might not be intimately familiar. Like our government has a very long history of meddling in other countries' affairs, especially in Latin America. So there were all of these different, you know, coups and military takeovers of 
more left-leaning governments and a lot of that was supported and encouraged by the United States, like by the CIA. So it might seem like, oh, wow, that's over there. That's not related. But like you're saying, Reese, absolutely. We have our own stuff domestically that happens. Like there's, wasn't it, in, it was in Chicago not that long ago. It was exposed that they had torture, like basically black sites in the city that the police would be running where people didn't know where their loved ones even were getting tortured. You know, we have people in New York city right now that were protesting, you know, after George Floyd died being beaten senseless by the police. You know, we do have that happening here, but you know, we also have people in our government that are responsible for orchestrating or at least helping to orchestrate, you know, these same things that we're reading about now with, you know, this one and that one taking over a democratically elected person because they're quote unquote communists and then putting in somebody that's an extreme right wing fascist. But, you know, their political interests are more in line with the U.S.'s interests, so it's allowed to go on or it's seen as a positive for the government. It's just. Yeah. And this is, you know, a little unrelated, but still related. Shout out to all the political prisoners that's still in prison now just for uh, opening people's minds and having different ways of thinking and trying to uh, change the discourse about life and how to be and who to serve. Because there's people still serving to this day because they were teaching people something other than this, you know, thought of American democracy and that just their sheer power of truth that they spent their lives doing they're they've served in prison sentences still are destructed those families in those ways too. So, you know, just made me think about all the people that's, you know, all of the Panthers and different people of, you know, really progressive thought that they try to call critical race theory today that are still serving time, still there just because of their simple rejection of this way of living and these thoughts, you know, it's, I just don't think we put enough, uh, energy towards thinking about people who are still serving these sentences for shit like that. No, you're you're absolutely right. And you know this, um, just doing some of the background reading uh, in Argentina, like it really does emphasize that thoughts and like ideas, like these uh, fascists are very afraid of that, and that's why they lash out. You know, so just the fact that you're reading certain things that you're aware of what's happening in other countries that in the way that it's connected to imperialism and racism and things like that, they will do anything to try to stamp that out, whether it's killing you, locking you away in a cage forever, doing something to your loved ones, and then you don't know what happened to them. You know, it's really it's not a game. I mean, even if you look at what's happening in Atlanta right now with Cop City, like the way people are being rounded up just for having an association or, you know, an assumed association with the movement to stop, you know, this disaster from happening. It's scary, but that's what the power of the state is. Like they have, you know, this life and death power over people and you know, I guess Argentina is one of the super extreme examples for it to be so many people all at once. Like it's up to 30,000, probably more 
but it's not just Argentina, obviously. You know, it's in our own backyard. A lot of this stuff is exported from the U.S. and other Western countries to other places where it happens tenfold. And, you know, the thing that kind of spooked me was um, in Argentina right now, there's a movement of people that are like pro-dictator or like they're trying to erase what happened or claim that not that many people died. And it's it's scary that you could know the facts and still kind of come out on that side of things, you know? Absolutely. Very interesting story. Thanks for sharing that one. So um, we have a goodish story. It's alleged. <laughs> it's, alleged it's some alleged sprinkle and some allegedly good news coming our way. So Reese, go ahead. Yeah. So in the search for good news stories this week, I've seen it on more than one website. So I was like, okay, maybe this is something to to think about. I'm reading it currently from um, theweek.com. And the title of this short little article is Global Happiness Has Been Remarkably Resilient Over the Past Three Years. The World Happiness Report, released Monday, ranks the happiest countries in the world based on an average life evaluations in 150 nations. There's good news. Happiness remained remarkably resilient over the past three years, with global averages aligning with the three years before the pandemic. Even during these difficult years, positive emotions have remained twice as prevalent as negative ones and feelings of positive social support twice as strong as those of loneliness. Report co-author John Hillwell told CNN, Benevolence to others, especially the helping of strangers, which went up dramatically in 2021, stayed high in 2022. Finland also continues its streak as the world's happiest country for the sixth year. The report evaluates a country's happiness based on the GDP per capita, social support, life expectancy, freedom to make life choices, perceptions of corruption, and dystopia. Finland seems to excel here because the Finnish welfare system ability to help its citizens feel taken care of because of the system's ability to help its citizens feel taken care of. So that's really it. That's the story. Uh, people are generally in the midst of all of the things we're going through with the recession and, um, you know, all the other things in this world that have made things challenging and difficult. Um, people are still maintaining some level of support for one another and a community, which I think we talked about in, in the L.A. story this week. Um, and that's that's a good thing. Right. I mean, sometimes you got to pull for it. But. You know, I got your back, girl. <laughs> we gonna get through this. We gonna get through yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like uh, if they're using GDP and stuff like that, I think that there could have been quite a bit of like juice in the numbers. But I do feel like you know you can find corners of your life to be happy about, or like you can, you know, be realistic about what needs to be done, but also you know, not forget the good things that are still happening. Cause there are still, you know, good things going down. Like we, yeah. you know, our first news story today, I would count that as a good news story, you know, people coming together and improving things for themselves because of their own like worker power. Like that's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, specifically they're, they're judging off of, you know, social support, life expectancy, freedom of choice, which I think obviously is being, uh, fucked with right now but um you know what yeah we're all in this shit together i gotta go to finland though like i want to oh, see what really? they got over there i need some of the finland juice because six years 
Six years they've been on this report mm. as the happiest place yeah, to be I don't in the know. world. I don't, think, I don't think any of the Scandinavian countries are ever going to see me. But it's a bit monochromatic <laughs> over there. So, And I don't know. Some people are I like that you. and they're happy I until they you. see somebody different in their line of sight. And then all of a sudden it switches up. <laughs> so, Yeah, well, you know, I guess if, if you know. I'm happy that people are happy. I'm happy that people are feeling resilient, even though it feels like it's overwhelming. I guess it's a shout out to everybody this yeah. is maybe challenger right now, but you know, hang in there, yeah. share a positive word when you can. I'm happy to be here. I'll <laughs> say that. I'm, I'm still here. I'm still here. So that's something to celebrate. There we go. There we go. I know you got something to celebrate out there, listeners. Uh, we celebrate you listening to the stories and being with us each week. We appreciate the support. Yeah. Speaking of celebration, um, we're currently in Ramadan. So, you know, if you're yes. observing, I hope you have a good um, month of faith and reflection and fasting and everything. Pretty soon it will be Passover and then Easter. So um, a lot of things that, you know, those who are observant can look forward to. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, so this has been a show uh, you've been listening to, Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based uh, Brooklyn radio. And um, today that we're recording is the birthday of Aretha Louise Franklin, who, you know, sadly she left us a few years ago, but she's still with us in spirit. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a song uh, by her featuring Lauren Hill. This is A Rose is Still a Rose. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Listen, dear. Bye. I realize Bye. that you've been hurt deeply because I've been there. But regardless to who, what, why, when, and where, we're all precious in his sight. And a rose is still and always will be a rose.